couple of weeks, Luke chapter 8, um, and we'll be looking at verses 22 to 25 this morning. In this first story, Jesus calms the storm. No doubt a familiar story to many of you, if not all of you. Jesus calming this storm for his disciples. Uh, let me read the text for us, and then we will begin to look at its truth. Following as I read Luke chapter 8, starting verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filled with wa- and they were filled with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, "Master, master, we are perishing." And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, "Where is your faith?" And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. This is the word of the living God. If you meet someone and you don't know them, it is uh, always easy to talk about at least one thing, the weather. (laughs) What is happening with the weather? It is just something we universally experience and know and can talk about. Uh, Who controls the weather? Listen to Psalm 65, 7. About God, who is the one who stills the rumbling of the seas, the rumbling of their waves. Or Psalm 89, verse 9. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Not only the weather, but all things are in the hands of God. They are directed by the sovereign, all-powerful, wise, and good God. All of those things are essential as we think about God's character and working in the world. He is good. So everything he does is good. He is wise. He knows what's best. And he's powerful to control all things. This next section in the Gospel of Luke zeroes in on Jesus' identity, who he is, and is going to then shift to uh, what he has come to do as Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he has come to die and to be raised again. Now, in this section, we've just looked at the parable of the soils and how you hear the word of God. And now we're coming to a section in Luke chapter 8, which is going to tell us, we might say, why you should hear the word of God. We've just looked at how, but now it's why. Why should you listen to the word of God? And the issue in all four of these stories that we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks surrounds the authority of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. We see Jesus's authority over danger and difficulties in our story this morning as Jesus calms the storm. We will see Jesus' authority over demons in verses 26 to 39 as he casts a legion of demons out of a man and into a herd of pigs. We will see Jesus' authority over disease in uh, the story that follows chapter 8, verse 40 and following. And then we will see in the middle of that, Jesus' authority over death. Verses 40 to 56 as well. So there's these four stories that are interconnected. They all surround faith in Christ and also elements of unbelief. But they also are linked together by this theme of the authority of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And this is going to all culminate in Peter saying in chapter 9, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so we see the authority of Christ. And one writer puts it helpfully as he looks at these four. And he says, these four samples consist of worst case scenarios, instances in which folks are in the most desperate of, or hopeless of circumstances. And yet Jesus shows he is fully adequate for each one. 
So these are desperate conditions. This incredible storm about to take the life of the disciples. This man who is uh, indwelt by all of these uh, demons possessed by them. This woman who has had this disease for many, many years, 12 years, and has spent all of her money on physicians and yet has been hopeless. And this, this girl who will be healed and raised from the dead. And so we see these worst case scenarios and Jesus' authority to handle all of them so simply with a word. Question really over all these stories is found in our text in Luke chapter 8, verse 25. Who then is this? Who then is this? And certainly no better subject for us to consider this morning than the Lord Jesus Christ and his person. It thrills the believer to hear about the Lord Jesus, to hear the stories again. Why is that? Well, Luke himself wants you to have confidence in the story of Christ. He begins his gospel saying that he's writing to Theophilus, and of course, by extension, others as well, but that he would have confidence in the things that have taken place. And so we, we need confidence. And so how does Luke go about giving us confidence in the gospel message and in Christ? By telling us the stories of who he is that reveal to us who he is and what he has come to do. It's been said, I love this quote, it's been said that trials reveal whether you are living what you are learning. Trials reveal whether you are living what you are learning. And that is certainly the case for our disciples here as we look at this storm that comes upon this, the, the Sea of Galilee, and it tries their faith in a, in a powerful way. Jesus is seeking to strip them of self-confidence, any skill of their own, so that they would trust in him in the most desperate of circumstances. And, and we need that same work of God in our lives, that we would come to not be self-reliant, but reliant upon Christ and his sufficiency and his power in our circumstances. So as we look at this text, I want us to look at four truths revealed about Jesus to increase your trust in him. We all need more uh, trust in Christ. We, we need more reasons to trust in Christ. It's one thing to tell people, trust in Christ. And that is absolutely something we should say. But we must also give cause and reason for trust in Christ. And that is by pointing us back to the text to look at Christ in the scriptures. And it is the scriptures that tell us about him, and it puts in our hearts this confidence in him that we would trust in him. And so may the word do its work in our lives as we look at the person of Christ here in this story, and may our faith increase as we see him on the pages of scripture. So these four truths revealed about Jesus to increase your trust in him. The first is the personhood of Jesus, the personhood of Jesus. And we want to see this in Verse 22 in the beginning of verse 23. Look there at verse 22 again. It says, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. I'll stop there for a moment. Luke packages his material more thematically at times than others do. And he just gives a general statement. Uh, one day, one day. Like I said, he's talked about why we should hear the word of God or, or uh, how we should hear the word. And now he's going to tell us why we should hear it because of the authority of Jesus. Jesus' disciples and Jesus are coming off an incredibly busy season of ministry. Very taxing. And, and Jesus then instructs his disciples to travel with him to the other side of the Lake of Galilee. And as they do, they get into the boat and they begin to sail uh, Across and, and Luke makes it clear that it is such a, a, a perfect day for having the boat out to start because they're not even having to put in oars. They're just sailing along. And as they do, Jesus gets into the stern of the ship, Mark tells us, and there's a, there's a pillow there and he lays his head down and he just, he just conks out. He's so exhausted. Verse 23 says, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. This just shows how exhausted Jesus was. He was tired. I don't know if you've ever seen these. I've just, I like to read like one Navy SEAL book a year. It just makes me, you know, 
work harder in other areas of my life <laughs> uh, and, and just respect just the intensity of the training that they do. And you can watch videos as well, but if you watch videos of, of their, their training, their intense training, you'll see uh, guys who are falling asleep standing up. I mean, the, the sleep deprivation is so intense that they're just anything, they just lean on a wall and fall asleep or just standing out and they're like about to fall over. And that is really the state that Jesus is in. He's been He's been so sleep deprived as he's been serving and ministering and healing and preaching from place to place. And people, I mean, the demands on Jesus's time in person have been immense. And so now they get into this boat and they begin to just sail along. And he just passes out. I mean, I don't know if you've been this tired before where you could just you could just fall asleep in any position anywhere. You know, you're that tired. What does this tell us about our Lord? What does this reveal to us about him? Well, at the most fundamental level, it reveals that he is truly human, that he was truly a man. We like to rightly emphasize the deity of Christ, that he's truly God. And so sometimes we don't emphasize as much the true humanity of Christ, but it is absolutely true that the person of Christ has two natures, a true divine nature and a true human nature nature. He is both truly divine and truly human. And as we look at this story, it's very fascinating because we have both on display here. For only God can control nature, and yet only man needs to sleep. According then to his human nature, Jesus has become so exhausted that he falls asleep in the boat. And yet at the same time, according to his divine nature, he directs this storm to come upon the lake and then he will calm it. And yet there's no division in the person of Christ. There's no confusion of these natures. He's not a third thing. He has a true divine nature and a true human nature. But just, but just to appreciate that, listen to Isaiah 40, verse 28. Isaiah 40, 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. So when we're talking about the divine nature, there's no need to sleep. I mean, you can go to sleep because God does not sleep or slumber. And yet here we have Jesus, according to his human nature, so exhausted that he falls asleep. This is the wonder and marvel of the incarnation. Stephen Wellam writes this, in the incarnation, the son did not cease to be what he had always been. I like to say, especially around Christmas time, when we talk about the incarnation, there's this statement that it would be helpful to remember. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. And that safeguards both the reality of the divine nature and the human nature of Christ. Remaining what he was, truly divine, he became what he was not, truly human. And so in the incarnation, there is no sense in which any of the divine attributes ceased to be operative. Kevin DeYoung writes this, the son, even in his incarnate state, is able to live a divine life outside his human nature. Or as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it like this in question 48, since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity he has taken on. But at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. I may have lost you there, but it's the sense to say that when Jesus is present in this boat, according to his human nature, his divine nature is not bound by that time and place, but is everywhere present. He continues to sustain the universe and to exercise his divine attributes together with the Father and the Spirit. That's a quote. Um, And so at no point does he cease to be God and what it means to be God. If you stop having an attribute of God, you are not God. (laughs) So he maintains all of the attributes of God, all that it is to be God. Young helpfully states again, he says, all this means 
because the divine nature did not undergo essential change, that in coming to earth, the Son of God did not abdicate his rule, but extended it. It also means because the human nature was not swallowed up by the divine, that the Son's earthly obedience was free and voluntary. This understanding then protects in the incarnation that Christ's divine and human natures were indissolubly joined, yet without confusion and without change. This is the wonder of the incarnation. This is the, the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus together. And, you know, if you got a little lost there, just let that be a reason to praise God. I mean, and to go, whoa, there is more to this than I first understood. I mean, we have to say God, Jesus is truly God and truly man. Absolutely. But there's so much more to think about and understand to that. And it, it could take us a lifetime to, to parse out these things. And as we study church history and Sunday school, we're going to get into some of these debates and why they're guarding this truth to guard the true humanity and true deity of Christ. If we were to look at Philippians 2, we would see the humility of Christ in that though being divine, he took on human nature. Let me just read this for us. In Philippians 2, verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, now, interestingly enough, Paul's main point is not to talk about the incarnation. It's to talk about humility. And he uses the incarnation as an example to talk about humility in our lives. And so this is the person of Jesus. Doesn't this cause us to marvel? Doesn't this cause you to, to think of the authority of this man who is truly God and truly man? I mean, this is the basis of your salvation, that Jesus has to be truly man to stand in the place of men, of humanity, and have an obedient life. And yet he must be God to be a mediator for us and put his hand on God, so to speak. And so here is the Lord Jesus, the God-man. I entitled our, our message, The Weather God-Man, right? We talk about weathermen, but this is the weather God-Man, the person of Christ, the personhood of Jesus. This is the first truth that is revealed here to increase our trust in him. Secondly, I want you to notice the providence of Jesus, the providence of Jesus. In verse 23, in the second statement there, it says, and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. The Sea of Galilee is really the perfect theater for this sign. Uh, it is about 13 miles by 7 miles, give or take. It's about 680 feet below sea level. It's the lowest freshwater lake. Uh, there's kind of a natural wind tunnel that the geography around it creates, leading to these storms that can crop up like this. It's about 30 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. And here is the, the lake around which Jesus has been ministering in Galilee. And as he gets on this boat, he sends his disciples across. He instructs them to go across. And this windstorm comes down upon the lake. Now, what I want you to see is that Jesus is the one who initiates this journey. He leads them into the storm. There is no storm apart from the will of God. Listen to Job. Job chapter 37. It speaks about God's power and authority over the weather. Job 37 verse 3. Under the whole heaven, he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. Verse six, for to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour, his mighty downpour. Verses 10 to 13, by the breath of God, ice is given. By the broad waters are, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. 
They turn. They turn round and round by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love. He causes it to happen. Psalm 147. Psalm 147, verse 8. says, Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. This is the wrong verse. <laughs> Sometimes, I, oh no, it's, one, it's actually not. I, I'm reading the wrong passage. <laughs> I was in 146. 147, verse 8, here it is. Uh, he covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. And I have you know, a bunch of others here. I think we've proven the point. I want to point out one other, though, that is very explicit. In Jonah chapter 1, Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, it says this, But Yahweh hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. You can't get more explicit than that. God controls the weather as well as everything else. He brings about every storm that there is. He determines the location and the severity and the duration. We need not rescue God from this responsibility. Isaiah 45 or 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. And so Jesus in his providence controls this storm that he sends them into. And here's a side note to realize they were obeying the word of Jesus and ended up in this storm, right? <laughs> They're listening to the word. They, he says, go to the other side and they do it. And what happens? This is probably one of the greatest trials of their lives as they are, they're fearful of, their, uh, of death and, and losing their lives in this storm. Obedience to Jesus does not exempt you from the muck of life. You can be completely obedient to God and yet encounter life-threatening circumstances. Yet it's all according to God's good, wise, powerful, sovereign providence. Who else would you want in control of the difficult parts of your life? Isn't it far greater comfort to know that God directs all these things in your life and they're not random? They're not uh, God taking a week off <laughs> and then oops. And God never says oops. But there's another area of providence to recognize in this story. Don't you feel a little deja vu with this story? Doesn't it seem like an echo from another story in scripture? In the Old Testament, in the prophets, in the minor prophets. Yes, Jonah. <laughs> we just look, look, look there. So uh, in Jonah 1, right, remember Jonah is fleeing from God when God told him to go to the Gentiles and preach to the Gentiles. And God hurls this great wind upon the sea and the sailors are fearful for their lives. They're crying out to their gods. And it actually says, they say, we are perishing. In the Greek translation, it's the same word that the disciples say, we're perishing. But whereas they must throw Jonah into the sea to stop the storm, Jesus wakes up and speaks to the storm and it is calm. But there's another connection because Jesus is asleep in the boat and Jonah is asleep in the boat. Luke is trying to trigger a memory for you. And the result of both of these calmings of the storm is awe and worship of the true God by these sailors. But there's another similarity that's interesting. Both Jonah and Jesus are headed to Gentile regions. Jonah is headed to um, the Ninevites. Jesus is headed to the other side of, of the Sea of Galilee, which is in Israel, but he's headed to a Gentile region. Because, how do we know that? Because the next story is where Jesus casts out a legion of demons from this man and they go into a herd of pigs. That is not a Jewish area. In fact, archaeologists can tell a site, whether it was 
Israeli or not, uh, based on whether there were pig bones there. (laughs) Because they know Israel knew these were unclean and didn't have pigs. They didn't keep them. And so this is a region. He's going to a Gentile region. So fascinating as just the providence of God in directing these things. In, in Sunday school, we, we learned about how Paul, or sorry, how Peter is connected to Jonah as well, as he is Simon Bar-Jonah in Joppa, called to go to Cornelius, a Gentile, and he obeys. So there's these different connections in scripture like that. And it's just God's providence orchestrating the story and history to bring him glory we see also from this that not only is Jesus divine, but he is the universal savior. I mean, it is a providence of God to reenact this story in this way, a true story to show God's power and providence over history even. We see here then that Jesus directs his disciples across the lake and into the storm. Jesus directs the storm upon the lake and Jesus directs the events of history and fits into them perfectly. Is he not worthy of your trust? Is this not cause for you to trust him more? To think that this one controls all storms, controls all circumstances, controls all history, and controls your life, and is for you, dear Christian, if you're in Christ. Conviction alert, eminent. <laughs> Jerry Bridges and Trusting God, a great book I would commend to you. I was reading that for sermon fodder this week. And man, this is so convicting. Listen to what he says about the weather. Quote, complaining about the weather seems to be a favorite American pastime. Sadly, we Christians often get caught up in this ungodly habit of our society. But when we complain about the weather, we are actually complaining against God who sent us our weather. We are, in fact, sinning against God. Numbers 11.1. Not only do we sin against God when we complain about the weather, we also deprive ourselves of the peace that comes from recognizing our Heavenly Father is in control of it. Whether the weather merely disrupts my plans or destroys my home, I need to learn to see God's sovereign and loving hand controlling it. Ouch. (laughs) Yes, but what a comfort. What a comfort to realize this God. Nothing happens apart from the hand of your loving Savior. This is the providence of Jesus in the life of his disciples and in your life as well. Well, third, we see here another reason to trust in Christ is the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus in verse 24. Look at verse 24. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he woke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. They're beyond their know-how, despite being many of them professional fishermen. This is the lake they fish. They know it. They know the best spots to catch the fish. They they know when the weather is going to turn. Sometimes it turns unexpectedly, like in this, but they've, they've never seen anything like this. And so what do you do when your professional fisherman panicked on the lake? You wake up the carpenter. (laughs) That's what they do. Now, isn't it great? And don't you love it that Jesus is still asleep? (laughs) I mean, they're panicking for their lives and he's asleep still. And this is how exhausted he actually is. And so they have to wake him up. Now, each gospel writer that tells this story uh, has Jesus awoken with a different title, right? So Luke says, master, master. Uh, Mark says, teacher. And Matthew says, Lord. You know, and if you were like a big skeptic, you'd be like, oh, this didn't happen. They, they all said, you know, clearly they, they're embellishing this story. No, here's what happened. They're not all going, hey, which one of you to wake Jesus up. He's having a, his nap time, you know. Who, who wants to, I don't want to be the one. No, that is not what's happening. They are panicking. This is pandemonium. And some of them are saying, Master, Master. And others of them are going, Lord. And others are going, Teacher. And they're just yelling out because they're about to die. That's what's happening here. And so Mark goes, okay. Matthew wrote what he remembers and Luke what he remembers. And they all 
harmonize here and help us to see that this is utter panic on their part. This is not calm. They're yelling at him. They're trying to get him awake. They don't know what he will do. I don't think they were expecting him to do this based on their response after he does it, but they they think he can do something. They've seen his miracles before, but he hasn't done anything like this before. And so though they, we know they are lacking in faith, they at least go to Jesus. They at least go to him. And so Jesus gets up and you know what it's like when you are utterly exhausted and you wake up and you're a little groggy, but Jesus looks around at the storm and he just speaks a word and it's gone. (laughs) It's just over. It's a dual miracle because not only does the storm stop, the winds, but the waves become utterly calm, like eerily calm. If you like woken up in the morning and there's a lake and it's just like misty and it's calm and there's not any ripples in the water. Like that is the situation after this. It goes from, We are about to die to no wind and the water is perfectly calm. It's just their boat sailing along, cutting a little triangular path through the Lake of Galilee. And like, what do you say after that? Like, there's no small talk after that. You know, (laughs) hey, do you see the game? (laughs) It's like, no, what, what? I mean, they're all looking at each other. This is utterly, he just says, stop. I mean, and who talks to weather? <laughs> who, who says it? In Mark, he tells us what Jesus actually says, and it's this, silence, be still. The, the wind doesn't have ears, but it obeys its master. And so this is the power of Jesus' word. It's the very word of the creator. The power of God is not like ours. It's no more difficult for God to create a universe as it is to move a feather. God does not have power. God is omnipotent. God is not made up of parts. He is all that he has. And so he simply speaks. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, all things were created in heaven And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, For for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. John 1, 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything in creation obeys Jesus. Weather obeys Jesus. Demons obey Jesus. Disease obeys Jesus. Death obeys Jesus. And consider for whom Jesus exercises this power. It is for his disciples. What an encouragement it is then for you and I to take our cares to the Lord. For Romans 8, 31 tells us, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? For if God is for us, who could be against us? Who could successfully be against us? I recently heard a a pastor use an illustration from the life of G. Campbell Morgan. I thought it was appropriate for for this point. He was the pastor of the Westminster Chapel just prior to Martin Lloyd-Jones taking the pastorate there. And uh, as the story goes, there's an older woman who came to him and asked him for just counsel about her prayer life. And um, she asked G. Campbell Morgan if she could even bring her little problems to God in prayer. Can I, can I even bring the little things in my life to God in prayer? And his response was to say to her, ma'am, none of your problems are big problems to God. All of your problems are little problems to God. 
How true, right? This isn't like, oh, God's got come. What am I going to do for this one? I can't believe they asked for this. No, all of our problems are small to God. Yes, they're big to us. I'm not minimizing that. But, but isn't it an encouragement to God? There's nothing big to God. God is God. God is the only one. He is different from us. He is other. He is not in our class. He's not just a souped up version of humans. He is other. This is what holiness means. This is our Lord. And this is the one who is for you in Christ. This is the power of Jesus. And what an encouragement this should be to you to trust in him more, to know this is the object of your faith. This one is the object of your trust. Now, he may not. uh, I mean, if you just take this and think about difficulties in your life, this is certainly a difficulty in the life of the disciples. This is not a promise that Jesus will do this for all the difficulties in our life, but he is present with us in all of them. And he is directing them for his purposes. He's certainly directing this to do something in their lives. And he is with them in the midst of it. This is the power of Jesus. Finally, we see here for our faith, for its increase, the preeminence of Jesus. The preeminence of Jesus in verse 25. Look there. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? There's really two questions here. There's the question from Jesus to the disciples and the question of the disciples about Jesus. First question is about their faith related to this present storm. Of course, they have faith in Jesus to some degree. They're with him. They're they're learning about him. But In this instance, in this particular trial, they are lacking in the faith in Christ they should have. It's like their faith went on vacation during the storm. The issue is always the object of our faith. It is not just faith in faith. It's it's what what are you trusting in? What is your what are you relying upon? And so, therefore, if 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 the issue is the object of your faith, then. To increase in faith would mean to have greater confidence in that object, right? So it means the goal to increase your faith is, number one, well, you have to have the right object, but then to have a greater appreciation of the reliability and stability of that object. And so that is the very thing that Luke is doing for us here. And it is what Jesus is calling them out on. It's not saving faith that they lack. It's sustaining faith that they lack in Christ. And so he says, where's your faith? This is a rebuke to them. Where's your faith in me? Why didn't you trust in me? J.C. Ryle says, "It it is only too true that sight and sense and feeling make men very poor theologians. They might make your head scratched a little bit for a second, but what does he mean? That sight, sense, and feeling make men poor theologians. Here's what he means. If you base your theology on just your perception of the world and you just kind of look out and your feelings and how you think about stuff and and that's how you base your view of God and what's happening and theology, you're going to be a bad theologian. (laughs) And his point is, your theology needs to be based upon the truth of the scriptures, not your personal experience. That's what makes for a good theologian. And that's why earlier we said, are we living what we are learning, right? The disciples have been learning things about Jesus, but all of a sudden it goes out the window. Trials reveal whether or not we are living what we are learning. Is it ever like that for you at times? talk about the sovereignty of God, ultimate and secondary causation, doctrines of sovereign grace, no maverick molecules in the universe, the divine decrees, etc. You know, and you just you get all the technical, you know, for left Syrianism. And, uh, and then a trial comes into your life and you're like, oh, what's happening? You know, and it's like all the theology is like, <laughs> what happened? I mean, does that not frustrate you? It frustrates me. <laughs> Lord, oh, how did I forget? who you are, what you're doing, that you're with me. Forgive me, Lord. 
this is what's true. This is what's real. Your word. Not my feelings. Not what I'm seeing. Not what I'm sensing. It's truth. It should be directing me. That's what makes for a good theologian. We're all theologians. You're just a good one or a bad one. And they respond with a question of their own. And they say, who is this? Who is this? In a way, this is a question of Luke's gospel. Who is this? It's after the storm that they become truly afraid. Right? They were terrified. This may have been on, the, on the, the meter of their fear. It was probably at the highest point that it had ever been. And now the meter is just broken. <laughs> it, they, are, they didn't know there was a category for fear that went beyond what they had just experienced. There's the fear in the storm and there's the fear after the storm. Fear of circumstances gives way to the fear of the creator. John MacArthur has this great statement. He says, the only thing they found more terrifying than the storm outside their boat was having the creator and controller of the storm in it. Now, this is the experience we see time and again in scripture as people encounter the trauma of holiness. The trauma of holiness. Isaiah, woe is me, Lord. I'm a man of unclean lips. Ezekiel falls down. The spirit has to enter into him to stand him back up. Samson's father in Judges 13, we've just seen God. It's over. We're going to die. <laughs> Paul on the road to Damascus. John in Revelation 1, getting these visions. It's utterly overcome by what they see. A pastor friend of mine said this. He was observing a quote from Sigmund Freud. Uh, he said, Sigmund Freud said, people invent religion in order to cope with the fear of natural disasters. And then he says this, my friend did. He says, but Freud misses a basic point about the nature of people. People are always more afraid of holiness than a hurricane. More afraid of holiness than a hurricane. Luke wants you to ask the same question. Who is this? Who is this man? Well, Luke, no doubt, would be familiar with this text. Psalm 107. Psalm 107. Verse 25. Psalm 107, 25. Says this. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea, They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Does that not give you chills (laughs) to read that in Psalm 107 and then to basically read the exact story in Luke chapter eight? Who is it that the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 107 who does this kind of stuff? Yahweh. Yahweh does this. Who's doing it in Luke chapter eight? Jesus. And so they asked the question, who then is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. No doubt, they know about Psalm 107. Jesus does what Yahweh does. He is truly God. They are in the presence of the creator. And they just witnessed his control over the creation. What difference does the deity of Christ make in your life? Where is your faith in Jesus? Are you living what you have learned about him? 
The text does not leave us wondering how we should apply the text, how we should respond to the deity of Christ. It's all packed into verse 25. There's four responses that are packed into verse 25. The first is to trust in him. The first is to trust in him in light of his authority. Right? This is what we said in the beginning. He talked about how you need to hear the word of God. And now he's beginning to talk about why you need to hear and obey the word of God. It's because of the authority of Christ. So trust in him. He says, where is your faith? Where's your faith in me? Implied, trust in me. Look at who I am. Trust in him. That's the first application. Second, fear him more than circumstances and other creatures. Look what it says there. They were afraid. They were afraid. This fear, it it, it was greater and pushed out any other fears that they had. Rightly ordered fears is what you need. When you fear God, you put all other fears in perspective. You fight fear with fear. Fear of God defeats all the other fears in our lives of circumstances, calamities, and creatures. And so fear him this awe of him, this intensity of love for him because of who you recognize him to be. Trust him, fear him, marvel at his might and majesty. This is what it says. They marveled. They marveled. How did they marvel? They marveled saying to one another. Here's how you marvel. You can marvel in your heart. You don't have to say something. But Here, they marveled by talking about God. They talked about Christ. This is a way we can marvel. We talk about Christ with one another. Oh man, he's so great. Can you believe this? And you just start talking about your learning and you're like, I can't believe I made this connection in the Old Testament. And look at that. And look at him, look at Christ here working in the Old Testament. And and then look at him here in the gospels. And then looking at him working in the the apostles' eyes and, and just making connections and seeing things and learning things. And you're talking about, what are you doing? You're marveling. You're marveling. You're you're seeing, you're applying the deity of Christ to your life by marveling to other people. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So we marvel at him, we trust in him, we fear him, we marvel at his might and we obey him, we submit to him. Listen listen to what they say, who then is this? that he commands even winds and water and they obey him. They obey him. You see the connection? It shouldn't be that hard. If even wind and waves obey him, ought not you to obey him? Should you not obey him? (laughs) If inanimate creation obeys him and his word, you as a creature created in his image, designed to know him, designed to glorify him, designed as your summum bonum, your ultimate purpose to know God, enjoy God, delight in God, and thereby glorify God through your obedience as well? Of course. Shouldn't you obey him? Of course you should. And so here Luke gives us such a gift in recounting the story for us that our faith might be increased. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Where's your faith in Christ? I heard one person say, you can ask that in two ways. Where's your faith in Christ? And then you can ask it, where is your faith in Christ? And, and we, we see here Luke elevating the person of Christ for us, showing us who he is, showing us his, his personhood, he's truly God, truly man, showing us his providence to direct all of our lives, showing us his power over all things and showing us his preeminence as we see that he is God of very God, the ruler of all creation, our God, the joy of our hearts, and he is for us. He's for us. What great reasons to trust in him, to trust in him. Well, we have the privilege to continue to glory in Christ as we commemorate and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Why is he for us? Why is he for you? Because he died for you. He rose for you. He, in his death, bore your sin in his body on the tree that you might be forgiven of your sins, 
and credited with his righteousness, to be included in Christ, to be adopted as his child. And so as we transition to this time of the Lord's Supper, it is a sweet time to remember what Christ has done and to witness this to ourselves and, and even to the world that we, we, we remembered in Sunday school. The church is a community that witnesses to what Christ has done. And so part of that witness is the Lord's Supper. It is to witness through this, this meal together what Christ has done in our lives and what he will do when he comes again to celebrate this in his kingdom. And so this is a sweet time for believers to commemorate and to remember uh, and encourage our faith. Another way to increase our faith is to continue to partake of the Lord's Supper yet again and to remember that our sins are forgiven because of his death. And so we do come confessing our sins. We do come examining our hearts before the Lord uh, to partake of the Lord's Supper um, and, and appropriating the work of Christ yet again for that daily cleansing, for fellowship with Christ Uh, And yet we also are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes in this. So if you're a believer, as we say, uh, we welcome you to join with us. Uh, Even if you're not a member of our church, we we would welcome you to join us if you've been placed your faith in Christ, repented of your sins, and and he is your trust and help. Um, If there's some sin in your life that you have not repented of and you cannot repent of or will not repent of in this time or can't get it right with somebody, uh, we just ask you to let this pass before you during this time. Uh, If you don't know the Lord, we just ask you to observe, take this time to evaluate uh, your faith in Christ and trust in him and uh, contemplate him during this time. Uh, I'll ask the men now to come as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. And just to remind you yet again, as you uh, receive the bread and the cup and hold it as we partake of it together, um, to be thinking about the work of Christ, what that means for you as he bears the sin of the elect in his body, his sheep, his church, his bride. He dies for the many, and he has your name written on his hands as he goes to the cross. Not a a nameless, faceless crowd that he dies for, but particular names, your name, as he bore your sin in his body so that you could be right with him. So meditate on these great truths. I'll ask the men now uh, to pass the bread and the cup, hold them carefully, and uh, meditate before the Lord, and then we'll come together and pray and partake of them together.